All right, and welcome back to Off the Van. This is Jeff Struby. John's taking the week off this week. Uh, this is a special episode this week. We don't have, we don't have a uh, you know a band or anything you know with like published music and any of that. But what we do have, I argue, possibly even better. We could learn a little bit more from is uh, a live sound engineer name of Andrew Bowmaster. Why don't you say hi? Hello out there. Awesome. And uh, Andrew is not just like a sound engineer anywhere. He is actually, uh, he has started his own business. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm starting a company. It's called Passive Mission Productions. Um, We are a full production company. We are trying to do full everything, but um, I do stage design, I do lighting design, and I do sound engineering reinforcement. So you said you're trying to do everything. Um, What what do you mean by that? Well, I mean... um, Staging, I mean, when you go and you watch a concert like uh, Maroon 5 or Slipknot, they have these massive stages with massive backdrops and millions of dollars. And we'd like to get there. But obviously, most people don't have millions of dollars laying around to get there to doing everything super cool right off the bat. I can attest to that. (laughs) And I'm not rich, so I'm one of those people that's starting small and hoping to grow big. So you're you're starting out, obviously. How long have you been uh, working on this? Um, I've been working on the company for, um, well, I've had my LLC now for just about a year. Um, yep. My first project um, officially as a company was last June, and I've been working with the idea and planning and design for a couple years now. Cool, cool. So what was your first event as, uh, as Passive Mission Productions? As Passive Mission Productions, my first event was last June. It was the Peace Fest held at the LA Cafe here in Waterford every year. Um, I will be returning there this year for the, I think, 7th or 8th annual. Excellent. So clearly, clearly they liked what you were doing then. Um, well, we liked what I was doing. Um, all the bands had a favorable response. Um, previous years, they'd actually not had a sound engineer. It was just kind of plug and play and hope it sounds good. Oh, okay. Um, so no matter what, you were a, you were a step up. <laughs> yeah, I was a step up, but I brought a lot of other things onto the table. Um, I run with a digital board now, which as a sound engineer who trained on analog, that was the scariest transition in the world. Now that I've made it, I wonder <laughs> why I didn't do it sooner. Um and I've talked to other guys that have made the transition and feel the same way. Um, but with the digital board, it just brings so much more opportunity for um, reducing set change time between bands because you can preload everything and just load up the next set, ready to go, ready to go. So you don't have the dead time. You don't have time just futzing around on stage and then futzing around loading settings, adjusting settings, doing line checks. Um, you're basically doing a quick line check and adjusting pre-made settings that are designed to give you a good baseline to work from during the first song. So the first song sounds good. The rest of the songs sound better. Excellent. So you said that you uh, you started out on analog and just with this company, you've kind of transitioned to digital. Uh, how did you get started uh, when you were learning on analog? What was, what was all that? Um, I actually got started back in high school. Um, I was a big theater geek, big surprise. Um, I did light, sound, and stage work there, as well as a little bit of acting. Um, I went to school. We actually had a professional director from Meadowbrook Theater came out, ran our program, um, and we were trained hands-on by sound engineers, lighting designers, and um, from Meadowbrook Theater. And then our set designer was her husband who worked for um, George P. Johnson at the time. So he built sets professionally for USC, MSU, the auto show. So I learned from true industry professionals as I learned for four years. Excellent, excellent. So uh, you said you were a th- so you used to do onstage stuff too, or I did a little bit of onstage stuff. Um, what uh, what convinced you to get 
on to the more technical side of it. I'm a nerd and sure. I liked it. <laughs> um, well, one of the things was um, I went to a small school, so we didn't have an abundance of kids. Um, usually there was a few popular kids that always wanted to be on stage, have the lead roles and stuff. So there's always actors aplenty. Um, but you didn't have the people that wanted to do the technical stuff. And I was adept at it. I picked it up really quick and I enjoyed it. Okay. So it was kind of like, Hey, you do this. So why don't you run with that? And we'll worry about the rest. So, uh, fill in, fill in, fill in the, the gray area a little bit here between then and now, what kind of experiences have you had working with uh, live sound? Well, I had a couple years off shortly after high school, um, but then I've transitioned into a volunteer basis and I still volunteer even as I'm doing the company, um, at church, um, at my current church, we use a digital board and we run a full band and all that. And it's a lot of fun. Um, gives me a lot of practice. Um, I say that's an excellent chance for practice for live, for live sound guys. I can, I can vouch for this trying to look for career, careers and stuff like that. There's a lot of opportunities through churches either to, you know, go in on a volunteer schedule and learn it or a lot of them even offer the offer. Oh, I've seen a lot that are offering for a paid position in the church to uh, do that kind of thing. Yeah, what you see is um, the smaller churches tend to be volunteer basis, and it grows up as you get into the large churches and mega churches. Start going to super church, yeah. <laughs> um, our church is about seven, eight hundred people a week, so we're in that larger size, but we're not to the paid level yet. Right. Um, but we have a team of seven of us that rotate through the sound. Um, I actually play more than I run sound there. Um, but because I do it as a business, because it's been a hobby of mine for so long, I'm what is our um, emergency rotation person. When somebody has a last minute thing come up, I'm generally the one that jumps in and fills in because I'm not afraid of the board. I'm not afraid of the technology. I'm really comfortable with it. Um, but prior to that, um, the church I was at before that, we were all analog. And that experience started on a little... Um, 16 channel board and i grew and designed the system into a full 32 channel mixer system so as it stands now you're do you are you would you consider yourself like kind of like the lead when it comes to this kind of stuff or or do you saw some people that you know have some say over you other i mean obviously it's you have the clientele of the church and everyone else that kind of decides like what it's supposed to sound like but do you have someone kind of directing you as to how this is all operated or um well the way our church works is we have a worship arts team um, we have a worship arts leadership team. On the leadership team is the sound leader, the lighting leader, the stage leader, etc. Um, because I have talents in both lighting and sound, I've fallen into the lighting category as the lead there. And I do defer to another person for sound as the lead because obviously running two leads would be A, too much, and B, um, You'd start way step- too much. You, you would both start stepping on some toes, I'm sure. Yeah. So it's easier for... Because he's... um. The guy who runs our lead is actually a, um, he works for one of the big three and he does, um, it relates to sound, but not like our type sound, but he does like audio testing on the vehicles for like road noise or something strange like that. I don't remember exactly, but uh, he understands like the function of the wave and how uh, frequencies work and all that because he does um, ah, frequency endurance testing or something like to make sure stuff can withstand frequency vibrations and stuff 
which although it sounds very mechanical is very sound oriented so mm-hmm. yeah well they uh near where i go to school right across the street they're building the new Harmon headquarters which that's a lot of what they do so all us audio guys are really excited for when they finish we can go over there look for internships and stuff like that yeah i mean it's different but it's related which it's, is why he, he makes a great lead because he's got 20 some years experience doing that and you know for for the audio field it's one of those it's one of those sections of audio that you don't really think about or like how um like you know people who have to go to like uh, machine shops and stuff like that and test the sonic sonic atmosphere to make sure that it's not like too much of a hazard for the employees to be there without like ear protection and stuff like that there's a lot i mean everybody wants to produce the next you know hit record or perform on the next you know big stage present uh production but there's there's a lot more jobs than people realize uh in different fields that that you wouldn't have normally considered well right one of the big fields that we can consider looking at is actually um design and install um it's not sitting there and running it every day but every bar that goes up has a sound system every church that goes up has a sound system or is acoustically designed to resonate and be reinforced in some Mm -hmm. fashion and all of that requires somebody with an understanding to work on it exactly yeah and then of course there's the fact that there's a lot of bars that didn't have somebody to do that that you can go back through and um, just by word of mouth and talking to them, you can actually drum up your own business by saying, hey, I know you've got this. We can make it sound better. Do you want to work on it? We can create a cheap budget piece by piece, year by year, make your system better so that people get more benefit from it. From experience playing in a lot of bars and stuff like that with my band, I've noticed that uh, you can always kind of tell the bars that didn't really have that kind of foresight. And there's no there's no real middle ground there. It either sounds really bad because, you know, there was no planning or just by some sheer stroke of, you know, miraculous intent, like just the way the building is shaped and everything. It sounds it's like the coolest place you've ever played. Like the sound is like incredible. Obviously, you get a little bit more of the first than the other. But I know it's you never, you never really go into a place that didn't have any planning like that and walk out of there like eh, it was all right. It was either like, man, that place had like the most terrible acoustics or wow, that was like really that's some really cool sounds coming out of that place. Right. And the really cool thing about that is with all the technology that's available today, the compressors, the EQs, the delays and stuff that you use at front of house, you can actually set up the speaker system to change one of those venues that's like, ugh, that sounds horrible, the acoustics suck, to become one of those venues that sounds amazing. Exactly. It just takes a little education and a little um, application. So as far as like just like unideal situations like that, or even like you know I don't like to say it because you know it's kind of that stigma between bands and sound guys, but like you know bad bands or anything like that. What is what would you consider like a horror story from doing this for a couple of years now? Um, well, there's the favorites, which are the bands that show up completely unprepared. Um, as a sound guy, I my policy is uh, one is good, two is better, three is best. Um, the more redundant you are, the better off you are. You don't want something to fail and have no alternatives. Right. Which is what makes digital boards so scary because they're like a computer and a computer crashes your... You, you can't just... Yeah. It's not just power it off, power it back on, you're good to go. That's so different than the analog feel of, okay, that crashed, that channel's bad, just swap it out. Mm-hmm. But um, bands that aren't prepared is the biggest horror story. I remember um, working at a festival for... Um, engineering and one of the bands the bass player shows up and he's like oh well i don't have an amp i'm like okay well we have a di for you then he's like well i don't want a di half an hour later half an hour after the sets was supposed to start 
he shows up with his amplifier because he went home. <laughs> it's like, okay, guys, you still only get an hour set, and you used half of it setting up. Oh, right, and then the same band, the drummer wasn't happy with the backline drum kit, which, let's be honest, no drummer's ever going to be happy well, with a backline yeah. kit. You know, that's... Yeah. <laughs> it is what it is. You accept it because it saves so much setup and teardown time, which is the whole point of a backline right, kit. Right, yeah. Especially so, for a festival kind of setting. Like, those people are there for music. You don't want them hanging around doing nothing. Right. And when you have a limited space for a festival and you don't have room for 55 stages so that they can wander from stage to stage, mm-hmm. um, it's all about getting the bands on and off quickly. Um, but he decided to tune the entire kit top and bottom drum head and then he decided to um, mask off the drum heads to get the resonance that he wanted so he put like 15 layers of tape on some of the drum heads one piece at a time (laughs) so the whole band was just a little bit above the festival scene so to speak they were a little stuck up about it but that's i mean you're gonna get that that is how the industry is you get people like that and then you turn around and you get people that are like oh whatever i don't care um, like I had a singer, it's like, do you use effects? She's like, oh, I don't know. I don't care. People tell me my voice is good enough without it. And it's like, okay, I'll mess with it as I go then. Um, so you just get this wide variety. But I think one of my other favorite horror stories was um, when I first uh, started working in an old church, their sound room was a closet off the sanctuary right next to the pipe organ chamber. <laughs> so when the pipe organ was playing that was all you could hear helpful yeah <laughs> and so it was a lot of walking i think that's the biggest horror story is just trying to tune in mics and stuff when you can't hear where you want to be and i think that's why the digital transition so great you're bored sitting somewhere and you just grab a tablet like an ipad and Wherever you want to listen, you can listen and adjust without having to run back and forth like the old guys used to have to do. Absolutely. And it's, you know, say what you will about digital. It's made it's made stuff like this a lot easier. And for a festival setting, because like, I'm, I'm assuming this a lot, you do a lot of outdoor for uh, Passive Mission? Yeah. Um, the festival setting, the outdoor setting, it's great with the digital because all I have to do is get loadouts from the bands. And then I have a loadout chart for me and my crew. And basically what I do is the board's preloaded with um, baseline settings for every band. Um, if it's a band I've worked with before and saved the settings, I just reload their own settings. Um, so it's even more dialed in. But I have a pool of like 100 presets that I use that are predefined um, for different instruments just to make my life easy. And then I just preload all the channels into a scene and load each band up in order of the, the set list and make scenes for each one so that I just hit next and then I'm just changing what I'm plugged up front. Absolutely. And then, like, like I was saying earlier, like, because, you know, you, you have the people that, you know, oh, analog this and that. And, like, you know, there's there's some validity to that. I mean, analog can produce, you know, arguably a more warm tone and everything like that. But for an outdoor setting like that, you're not going to have the, uh, what do you want to call that? Like, even, even someone with an ear for it isn't going to be able to pick up on the differences enough to have to worry about that. So you may as well go with what's easiest, what transports best, like... Well, even when you go indoors and you have somebody that has an ear for that, um, one of the easiest ways around the loss of analog feel is um, you use mic preamps. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I am dedicating um, budget and rack space for expansion in the near future for that um, is just running two mic preamps on every mic channel. Um, just going through, 
Um, the drum ones will be preset. I will uh, get a good drummer friend to set up a drum kit, mic a drum kit, and work through those and get those dialed in super tight so I don't have to worry about them. But the rest of the mics will just go with baseline settings and those preamps and then just make adjustments at the board um, digitally um, to get that warmer feel that the, the tube type sound gives you. So you don't lose it with the digital. You just have to find it in right, a different yeah. way. All right. So we talked about uh, we talked about like some of your horror stories and all that. What do you consider like a personal triumph in this field that you've experienced? Um, well, my first major event, the Peace Fest, was uh, definitely a personal triumph. There, um, it was handed to me as an event with band change with the bands running um, fifty five minute sets, five minute changeovers. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that that sounds like a nightmare, right? But having run the digital board and being familiar with it, um, it actually flew a lot more smoothly than I expected. Um, again, that's where the redundancy came in. Um, I usually had enough cables to wipe one set into a pile and draw the next set out and then clean those cables up while they were playing after I got them dialed idea, in. Yeah. <laughs> that way it's not like, okay, I have to rerun this cable here, this cable there. I'd leave the, like the, um, I had three front mics set up at any given point for vocalists. So what I did for that was I just literally had a pile, a 50-foot cable, and it dropped when there wasn't a mic there, and I might plug something else in at the board at that point. Sure. And then it was ready to go to pop right back up when I had another vocalist there and another set. So it was like, okay, we're going to just do plug-in drops. And um, I had the bass set up, and it was a single plug-in drop cable. I made all the bass players set up on the same side, which... Oddly enough, bass players seem to like to set up on stage right or the left side as you're looking at it, depending on what side of terms you want to use. But that seems to be the bass player home. That's funny because that I don't know if you've you've seen my band. It's like the entire opposite. We have like our stage plot where I'm I'm always on stage left or as you're looking at it from the crowd, the right side of the stage. Like that never changed. I think it changed once, and we all agreed that it was just weird. The uh, the juju was off. <laughs> right, but you're also a three piece band. That's fair, yeah. Um, when you talk about four piece, five piece, ten piece, fifteen piece bands, it it does change. Yeah, um, yeah. But I mean, some of the success stories coming out of that was um, I got to work with some great singer songwriters. Um, I worked with everything from like a singer songwriter with just his guitar and his voice um, to a literally just a songwriter. He just did um, straight up acoustical guitar playing, and he was amazing. Um, all the way up to. Um, I don't even remember their name now, but they were uh, four-piece brass, two guitars, bass, and drums. Ooh. So, I mean, I, I was all over the place <laughs> in what I mic'd in the event, and it was just so much fun getting to just experience that variety. Um, and the, the real triumph was just hearing feedback as I was going, because obviously I ran the event primarily from an iPad walking around, and people are like, that sounds so good. I'm like, well, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, not even they, realizing they that you, I was. Yeah, this. they see you walking around with an iPad. They think you're just you know dicking around on something. They don't realize that you're actually <laughs> you're doing this. Like right, it, it it it's the most incognito job when you just run it from the <laughs> iPad. Um, I actually ran the entire event without a true front of house um, setup. I ran yeah. the board on the stage just because um, time and cable restrictions. It was like I didn't have those wonderful um, yellow and black cable protectors to oh, yeah. run it so that people <laughs> wouldn't trip and. Those it, are expensive, man. Dude, so expensive. So <laughs> worth it if you can afford oh, them. Oh, no, though. absolutely. Yeah, it's going to save other people. It's going to save your equipment, too. So Yeah, but I mean, with the digital board, it was so easy to just say, I'm not going to set up a front of house. Um, yeah. 
the sunburn I got that weekend taught me otherwise. Um, I have since invested <laughs> in a four-side open tent so that I don't get quite so burnt. For sure, yeah. Um, but the ability to wander, um, especially at a festival setting like that, because um, it's a art, music, and food festival, so people are wandering. So the ability to wander the event itself, to hear how things sound in different places, to be able to make sure it sounds good everywhere and make those adjustments um, was essential. Yeah. So you're talking about, you know, digital, you've had a better experience and everything, and you had these little tricks and tactics and everything. Is it always as easy as you're making this event sound? Oh, heavens no. Um, (laughs) They are computers, um, and we all know how computers love to be. Yeah, for sure. Um, Almost as bad as printers. Yes, almost (laughs) as bad. Sometimes worse. A step or two behind, yeah. one of the things that I've had problems with is because um, you can digitally assign an input to a different channel, mm-hmm. um, which is really cool because um, when you have a solo guitarist, it's really cool to double them up on two channels oh, yeah, yeah. and delay the second channel to fatten up a sound and and just create a fuller, fuller feel for it. Um, but on the same note, when you go back and you undo that insert, sometimes the computer gets unhappy and doesn't recognize the rerouting changes. Got it, okay. And you get stuck going, why do I have drums coming through 14 channels out of 32 (laughs) when they're only assigned to three? Yeah. And then it's just, sometimes it's a matter of simply just reloading what you're working with. Sometimes it's a matter of reloading back to scratch. Well, at that point too, like you can't really do it until the end of that song. (laughs) It depends. Um, if you're just reloading um, the settings for a channel, um, it's really easy to go into a library, pull up a setting that's close to where you're at, and just reinsert it into that channel on the spot. If you have to unload and reload the scene, yeah, you can't do that till you're like between songs. Um, but that's one of the cool things is that you have that capability. It's also one of the bad things that sometimes you have to use that capability because it's glitchy. So what else... Um Obviously, like, we're we're covering a lot. Of, we might be covering, you know, depends on the person, covering a lot of stuff that the people listening at home might not, you know, realize goes into this kind of thing. Um, if you could pick, like, one thing specifically that you wish that you wish that all musicians that you worked with or that worked with any sound guy, just from, from the, quote, sound guy perspective, what do you wish all these musicians knew about what you do? Um, it's the thing that, you, as a musician, I fight about too from the other side and that's stage volume um every musician wants to hear their own instrument above everything else every amp gets turned up a little bit more as you go along and that's um i mean when you're in a big outdoor festival that's easy to overcome because you're just such large volume such um great power usage i mean if you look at like coachella or um some of the festivals like that you're talking, they're using PA systems that are 100,000 watts plus. Mm-hmm. But when you walk up to, say, the Crowfoot and you're playing up in the Pike Room, you're talking about a PA system that might be like three or 4,000 watts tops. Yeah. And when you're talking about that, and now you're competing with a bass player with a 100-watt amp and two guitar players with 100-watt amps. And then the drummer. Like. <laughs> well, yeah, and then the natural ambience of the drummer, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it becomes harder to keep that balanced sound um, just because you're fighting the stage noise. I know um, at church um, I've run decibel meters both on stage and off the stage 
And there's times where on stage the decibel level's at 110, 115. You walk out three rows into the congregation and it's at like 85. Yeah. So you're competing with that volume that's obviously pushing off the stage as you try to mix a good house mix. Um, and and I'm not saying that every musician needs to turn down. They just need to be understanding of the situation and work to find that balance. And I think that's the biggest thing is you get, I, and I've seen it, you just get the sound engineer staying back at the board and it's like, we'll turn it down. It's like, well, I'm already at three. We'll turn it down more. And it's like, <laughs> you can't turn a tube amp down to one and get a good sound out of it. I mean, tubes are designed to be operated in your capacity. On the same note, the musician shows up with a 300-watt tube amp instead of a 30-watt tube amp. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay, bring the right equipment to the gig. And that's the thing. It's just it's just that give and take that needs to be there that often you don't see just because neither side understands the other side's perspective on it. For sure, yeah. Now, you mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned earlier you did Peace Fest, and I think you said you are doing it again this year. Do you have anything else coming up that uh, people can, you know look to see you walking around with your ipad at um hopefully i'm um, still waiting to hear back on some bids i have outstanding so i don't want to jinx those by mentioning them right um, yeah but um i you mentioned the midwestern sky nick and i are actually working on um an august show planning it right now so hopefully um everybody will be able to come out see them and i should hopefully be at that okay um as it stands i think there's another show coming up of theirs where um it's going to be at a house event, well, not a house event, but it's going to be at a, um, I think he's going to be in the Pike Room, um, but he's already got it cleared that um, they're going to use me as a sound engineer instead of using a house engineer. Oh, that's cool, yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that is a love-hate relationship as somebody running a company is the house engineer setting. Because um, <laughs> you go into a venue and you see an engineer who cares and it sounds great and it's amazing. And sometimes you go into a venue and you see a house engineer that has been doing it for far too long, has been in the same spot for far too long, and is just bored with it, mm -hmm. but doesn't want to give it up. And that's one of those things that I'm hoping my company can um, grow to offer is actually house engineers. So that any given venue isn't stuck with the same engineer all the time. I get to give the engineers different venues, different, different types of events. One, so they continue to grow as engineers doing different things, but two, so it never becomes a stagnant thing. It's not the same acoustical venue. It's not the same style bands. Cause like if you go down to say like the Berkeley front, they tend to have a lot of heavier bands, metal type bands, and that's what they run. You go to the Pike room. It's a big variety. You go to the, ball um especially in if you step into the ballroom there um they have a huge variety there and a lot of those are bigger bands that bring in their own engineers and stuff but not always but it's just nice to have a pool of engineers that get to work on a variety of stuff because then when you get that one metal band that has a sax player he's prepared for it <laughs> you laugh but it's i've seen some strange things I, I, I laugh because i know <laughs> so but when you get a metal engineer that's just used to three guitars and a bass player and a drummer, and all of a sudden he's got a saxophone, he has no idea how to deal with it on stage, it's not as good as the guy that was mixing a band last week that has a sax has 15 saxophones, and the week before that he was mixing a pop backup band for somebody that styled like uh, Britney Spears or Christina Aguilera, and the week before that he was doing a five-piece rock band. Yeah. So... I'm hoping, and I, I think venues will grow to it as my company grows and I can offer that, the idea of just 
having that variety and not having a stagnant um, engineer, but also when they have a big enough event, we draw the engineer that's best suited to the event that they want to run. So you you, 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 keep, you keep talking about like like where you see your company going and their influence on some of these venues and stuff like that. Is it is it hard trying to like? Is it hard, you know, trying to get these places to accept kind of where you're trying to take this or even just like the company in general? Was it hard to like figure out what you wanted to do with it? Because it sounds like you have a pretty good plan for it. Well, for me personally, I just, I want to, one of the big things that I want to do is I want to offer a different vision. I mean, you walk into a concert right now, um, there's pretty much two guarantees. Um the first one is that the sound volume was going to be between 95 and 110 decibels for most of the show. Um, and the second thing is, is that it's pretty much a cookie cutter experience. Different bands have a different feels, but the concert experience as a whole has become very um, stagnant. You don't see the huge variety. Um, the festivals have helped up a little bit, but I want to change that. I want a company that provides it um provides the opportunity for the quality that you see at the large festivals to be at your hometown festival but not to necessarily be a different company i want the company to be able to do the large festivals too so that as that hometown festival grows it's not like oh hey george it's been great having you for 50 15 years doing our stuff um but we're going with this national company now because you can't build the sets that we can finally afford um it 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 just becomes oh you offer that too cool um because so many of those big companies have forgotten that they started as small companies Mm -hmm. um like i'm sure well some of your listeners may have seen it a couple years ago on access tv they had a show called uh, tate towers all about um tate towers which is a production company um, full scale lighting, sound, staging. Well, they started as a lighting company like 40 years ago, but they don't do the small lighting anymore. They do Madonna, they do festivals, they do Green Day and stuff like that. And it's like, well, where's all that attention to detail for the locals? So I want to grow, but not leave the little guy behind. I, I kind of get it. You want to have a. Uh Obviously, as a business, like you have, you're you're operating as two separate entities right now. You have the entrepreneur side of you that wants the business to grow and become successful and have an influence and everything. But at the same time, you still have, you know, like you don't want to lose yourself along the way. Kind of, you want to be able to still have the, like some of these ideals that you have now as to how you want uh, the attitude towards you know all these different kinds of po- uh, potential shows and stuff like that. Right. I mean. Um one of the quotes that I use in the business a lot is from Tennessee Williams. And it's like, I don't want reality. I want magic. Um, the reality is when you go watch Maroon five, you see a little bit of magic with all the cool effects and lighting they get to do. Um, I want that for everybody, not just from Maroon five. So when Midwestern sky shows up or the, the reckless scamp show up, it's a cool experience. It's not just, I mean, I'm not saying you guys aren't a cool experience as musicians, but, the whole Who atmosphere <laughs> the whole atmosphere is a cool experience you get that mm-hmm. atmosphere that tends to be forgotten but without doing it at a price that's the millions of dollars um that rune 5 or anybody else spends it's like these guys spend so much money but there's so much technology that you can use at a more affordable cost to do similar things 
Now, growing up, did you did you go to a lot of these local shows to kind of see where it stopped becoming that, or? Um, I putched through local shows. I putched through national shows. Um, it's one of those things. As as it is my business, it's um, it's my responsibility to continue to go to shows all the time. Yeah. Um, I like going to local shows. I like going to bar it's a shows. Business expense. Yeah, it is. It's a wonderful <laughs> business expense. Um, it, it's the perfect excuse for a business expense. Yeah. Um, but what's really great about it is you just get to see so much. I mean, let's be honest. Seventy-five percent of the crowd doesn't show up at a main stage act till an hour, hour and a half after the first act has gone on. Right. Yeah. Well, how fair? I, I, th- I think anyone from either scene, national or local, can kind of attest to that too. Right. And it, but I've seen it happen at the local level too. It's like whoever's the headlining band. But on the same note, I've seen um, shows where you get like three bands playing together locally. The first band's doing like a record album release. They get like fifty people to show up, and then they all leave. And it's like, wait, there's two more bands. Why are you leaving? There's good music. Don't give up. <laughs> but part of that, I think, is the atmosphere. Um, I mean, you get into some of these bar venues. Um, they're cramped. They're hot. Um, they're still using old lights that create even more heat. Um, they're sometimes extremely loud. Um, DBA versus DBC are as obviously terms as a sound engineer you understand. Um, a is your audible but C matters. Uh, the, that that DBC um, affects how loud it feels. Um, even if it's quiet, if the DBC is too high, it feels louder, and that can be uncomfortable to people, especially in a small room, because that's when um, sound pressure builds, and that can become painful, actually. Um, I've been in rooms with bands where, because they're not paying attention to their db levels like that uh the pressure builds it's not super loud i've run my db meter in that but the pressure's building and it starts hurting your ears you're not going to stay for a band that you're not familiar with if you can get that sound sound fatigue yeah um and that's another thing i've you go to a show and you get to like this acoustical piece that the band's doing and it's the same volume as the rest of it that kind of atmosphere that kind of energy that doesn't change that constant up fatigues people and they don't stay i think providing a better experience all the way through actually does more justice to local bands because they'll actually get more people to hear their stuff because they'll be able to and i think i'm probably really off topic (laughs) hey man that's i don't know if you've listened to this podcast much but uh (laughs) oh well i think that's about all we got thank you uh really appreciate you coming on i think you'll be the first uh sound engineer we've had on at least the first one talking about that aspect of it um before we before we wrap up here uh what would you what would you say to because i mean like part i i started out um i was playing first and eventually i just started getting an interest into you know the actual sound engineering both you know in the studio and live and all that uh what would you say to those kind of people that you know either they're in a band and they're looking to do it or they just have an interest in general for it um study 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 um <laughs> it sounds silly it but sounds very anti-rock and roll but uh <laughs> but it's not because the biggest thing you can do to study is listen to different types of music um if you want to be a sound engineer for the Rolling Stones, don't just listen to the Rolling Stones. Listen to the music that inspired the Rolling Stones. Um, and then listen to the music that was inspired by the Rolling Stones. Right. Um, an excellent example of that learning by inspiration, 
um, and this is for a band, but it applies to the engineer as well, is Black Sabbath, the year before they released their first album, spent most of that year in a basement listening to jazz music. And it shows. But if you don't have an understanding of jazz when you go to mix metal, um, especially metal that's been inspired by Black Sabbath and has a lot of jazz intricacies to it, you're not doing it justice. Just because you don't like a style doesn't mean it doesn't have an influence on the work you want to do. So always listening to different music just to get an experience is very important. It's all about the experience. Uh, me personally, I can kind of attest to that. I'm really, I'm, I'm kind of a rockhead. I, when, when I'm listening for leisure and stuff like that, I, that's usually what I tend to go towards. It's kind of punk rock, rock and roll, classic rock, those kind of things. But um, when I started, you know, going to school for all this and starting to do this on the side, I started listening to a lot of country which not definitely not something I would have gone to normally. And, you know, I, I, I've certainly developed uh, a little bit of a taste for it since then, but uh, they're it very, very similar and very, very, obviously very inspired by rock and roll. So like hearing that, hearing how, how they mixed the different instruments, because I mean, a lot of, a lot of like modern country that comes out now, you have a pretty good balance of, you have acoustic instrument, acoustic guitars, electric guitars, your regular bass drums, and then they have a banjo or they have a, uh, lap steel uh, oh they uh, all kinds of mandolin they'll have like and it's it's all these different instruments and they come together and it is a really cool sound even if you don't like the style like because at first i i did, wasn't even that into the style of it but the actual the sound it was making i, 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 could, I could never sonic feel yeah i could never deny that it sounded cool to me i just you know for the longest time i just you know it wasn't into the actual style of the music but it always sounded very cool yeah and that's and it depends and it's like if you look at um, different types of music. One of the things that you can learn is how to use different techniques. Like um, bluegrass is an excellent example of where you see a lot of use of um, large diaphragm condenser microphones in use instead of the um, dynamic microphones that we're so used to seeing. And um, obviously in a, on a stage, that's a very risky thing because the, the bigger the mic, the more sensitive the mic, the more likely you are to get to feedback. But by studying bluegrass, you can understand how they mic it so that you can use those mics well when you switch to rock at a higher volume so that you can use a large diaphragm condenser mic on your drums to pick up the cymbals because the drummer has 50 cymbals instead of having like 45 pencil um, condenser microphones to do the same thing. Because obviously less is more when it comes to control. I mean, if you have to control five, six, seven mics for a couple different symbols because there's so so many symbols and it's such a small pattern, that becomes a burden on you. If you can learn how to do something from watching another genre so that you can do it with two mics so that it's a little bit easier for you, that's a perk. So you, there's always something you can learn from another genre, even if it's not one you like, just because they offer different techniques. And there's... The, the correct answer is there's no right or wrong answer. Oh, it's, it's all personal preference. Yeah. Well, again, I want to thank you for uh, coming on the show. It was a pleasure having you. I think, uh, I think it's cool. You know, um, you know, we, we usually do musicians and stuff on here, but, uh, for as much as musicians and sound guys, not so much like want, like need to work together. I think it's, uh, it's very important for both sides to maybe not like, like, like how you said earlier, like, you know, have have a plan going into it like that's being overly realistic that's not going to happen a lot especially with these local acts and stuff like that it's just, it's just not a very feasible right you can't expect the level of professionalism with a local act that does it 
on the weekends that you can with a band that practices 40 or 50 hours a week. Right. Yeah. But uh, at this at the same time, I think it's at least at the very least, it's nice for it's n- it's it's good to have an idea of where the other side is coming from. And like you said, you, you, you know, you've seen it from both sides. You've seen it as a performer and as a sound engineer. I, I myself have seen it both ways as well. So I can definitely say that it's it's definitely having worked both sides has changed how I act on the other side yeah. as 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 a performer um you know i i would you know get behind the board and i would i would know that like you know like maybe the bassist wants to be a little louder than normal like i mean me personally i play a very loud bass so i i, I kind of have that idea and you know not all and then from the other way though as the guy behind the sign behind the soundboard i found out that's not always very easy to pull off depending on the equipment you have the sonic environment like Right, room resonance and all that. Sometimes a very loud bass becomes just uncontrollable feedback. Just having worked, having worked sound has made me a better performer, and being a performer, I think, has also made me a better sound guy. And I'm sure you can, I'm sure you would say the same. Absolutely. And the reality is, it's a symbiotic relationship between the sound guy and the performer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, at least at the level we're at now. I mean. 40 years ago when you could sit in a room with an acoustic guitar and everybody would actually be quiet, (laughs) you didn't need the sound engineer. Now that people have this, that they like to talk, they like to interact, it tends to be over dinner that you're performing, you have to have this symbiotic relationship. The performer needs the sound guy and the sound guy needs to have performers because obviously the greatest sound guy in the world with no performers has nothing to do except for make silence. These local bar shows, I have, I have noticed, and you know, it's obviously I'm not old enough to have experienced this firsthand, but just from stories and you know, talking to people, watching documentaries and stuff, I feel like going to these local shows now is a little more of a social event than it is a musical event. It's sort of like it's, it's like an, ex, I'm, and I'm not, I'm certainly not saying that every, that all of the uh, audience and all the fans out there are this way, but it's kind of something to do, I which see. is which is cool. I mean, you're still being exposed to some really cool music, and you're helping support these artists and everything. But at the same time, you know, it's 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 just a different it's just a different attitude about it than it was, you know, twenty or thirty years ago. Right. It's a different respect towards the artist. It's a different type of environment towards the artist. But one of the things you notice is, um, and this is where we were talking about um, how people leave the shows. Um, because it is a social environment, is the venues that don't have seating tend not to retain fans from one band to the next band. Mm, yeah. Because there's That's no place point. to go be social. Um, the venues that tend to be very loud have the same problem because there's no place to go be social. Um, but a social environment with room for standing and room for seating seems to be the best mix for the bands. It gives them the opportunity for their fans to get up, dance, scream, yell, whatever. But then for them to move back and sit down when another band plays. And that that's the best chance for all the bands to get more exposure. Because if you're sitting there and talking and all of a sudden this ripping guitar solo comes on that you just love, you're going to perk up to listen to this band that you didn't know anything about before. I was just about to, I was just about to say I've act, like I mean as many times as I've seen that happen you know people you know they sit down with their drink there's like a lounge area for the audience and stuff like that and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna drop a band name here Downtown Brown um, we were playing a show uh, a couple of years ago and we were out in the parking lot just you know dicking around whatever and 
we heard these we heard them playing and we were like that sounds really cool and like so like we were like you know some some of us were smoking and so we we're waiting for them to finish up smoking we we're gonna go back inside and one of our friends that was still inside he came out and he was like no you need to come in here like right now <laughs> yeah so just giving people that opportunity to socialize so that they have that opportunity to hear more music is i think key for the industry going forward well, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. <laughs> I agree. And I've said this several times already, but th- again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank was, you for having me. It was, I think this was, this, I, I really enjoyed talking to you about all this and it's just nice talking to another sound guy too. <laughs> yeah. It's nice to talk to a sound engineer slash musician too, because yeah. so often it's like I get stuck into the engineer category Yeah, yeah. and it's like, but, but I, I play too. <laughs> don't forget i'm a musician it's just one one of them you're trying to make a career out of is the difference so yeah well we all know what musician wages are unfortunately yeah <laughs> I, i'm not gonna say engineer wages are way better but it's about making a living doing something you love exactly that's, that's yeah. the end all yep all right and on that uh that was andrew bowmaster with uh his uh uh, live live sound company passive mission productions uh, do you have a website or anything for that i do and i'm hoping you'll plug it at the bottom of the episode for, information for sure yeah all right folks well uh next week we'll have another band for you john will be back on the episode so until then have a great week